Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Inside Boxing Live. I'm your host, Dan Canobio, episode number seven. And boy, do we have a great one for you. Jam-packed weekend of fights. Uh, We have some great guests lined up for you on the show. The great Michael Buffer takes some time out of his busy schedule to join us here on Inside Boxing Live. And we're also joined by CBS Sports' Brian Campbell, who was ringside for the uh, Rigo Loma fight. He'll break down what he saw over the weekend as well as give uh, some of his thoughts on uh, 2018 as well as the fighters and fights of the year. Uh, of course, you can leave us your comments in the comment section. You can tweet us at CompuBox using hashtag IBL. You can watch us on Pluto TV. You can download us on iTunes if you search uh, CompuBox TV. So there's many ways to listen, to watch, to get involved with Inside Boxing Live. As you know, this is the show uh, for the fans. Before we talk about the weekend that was in boxing, because it was a very uh, entertaining weekend in the sport that we all love, we do have to uh, talk about the fight that's upcoming here on HBO this weekend between uh, David Lemieux and BJ Saunders. 2017 has been a phenomenal year for the sport of boxing, and we're ending the year with a very interesting, intriguing fight Take a look at the tail of the tape between David Lemieux and B.J. Saunders. A very important fight uh, for both guys. Uh, B.J. Saunders being the slick, the slick boxer of the two. He's more of a he'll, he'll stall you out. He'll uh, he'll do use all those tactics. There's not the most exciting fan friendly uh, boxer in there, but across the ring, B.J. Uh, across the ring, seeing. Uh, Lemieux is a knockout artist. He comes in there and tries to do one thing, and that's take you out. And the reason that this fight is so intriguing is because of the middleweight division. Um, We talked to Daniel Jacobs on this show in the past. He's traveling to Montreal because he wants to fight the winner of this fight. Triple G will be in attendance, according to reports. He will be in attendance because he can get the winner of this fight. There is a belt on the line. BJ Saunders has the WBO belt. There are a lot of moving parts for the middleweight division right now. Of course, everything goes through Canelo and Triple G, but everything goes through Canelo because of the finance that he brings to the table and negotiating power. Triple G, Canelo, still not made. Every day that goes by that that fight's not made, it's less likely to happen. I heard from a very good source that it's not going to happen at all. Uh, that that Triple G, I mean, that Canelo is most likely going to fight the winner of this Saunders-Lemieux fight. So in addition to being a great fight, on Saturday night on HBO is that there's a lot of ramifications in the middleweight division. So uh, HBO and boxing are going to round out a great 2017 with an intriguing fight uh, in the middleweight division. Saturday afternoon, streaming on Showtime, uh, had a streaming card on Facebook or one of the streams. Caleb Truax, huge upset over James DeGeele. Uh, some sports books in the UK had Truax as a 40-1 to underdog. He wins a decision... In in, uh, DeGale's hometown or home country, which no one saw coming, Twitter went crazy. 
Everyone loves Caleb Truax. He's the working man's champion. Caleb Truax is now a player in the 168-pound division. And we see this so much in boxing when James DeGeele, he overlooked his opponent here. James DeGeele was talking all week about how he wants the Groves Eubank winner. You know, they're fighting in the World Boxing Super Series. He wants the winner or, or someone in that division. So he was almost overlooking Caleb Truax. What happens? He loses his fight. That was on Saturday. Saturday night over on HBO, it was an eventful triple header. Uh, we saw a man's ear fall off. Stephen Smith. Disgusting. The most gruesome, grotesque thing I've ever seen in the boxing ring. Even uh, Andre Ward and Jimmy Lampley shared the same sentiment. Uh, his ear was hanging. It was dangling off. I don't know if we have it for you, but it, it, we'll have to put that. Maybe we'll put it in post, but it's nasty. If Go online and search um, Stephen Smith's ear because the thing was flopping in the wind. Uh, he had a, a serious injury, but uh, safe to say that he's okay. He tweeted out that he's fine. He's going to have a great Christmas. Uh, his ears all sewed up. But uh, in addition to uh, Stephen Smith, uh, he lost his fight. We had the robbery of Tevin Farmer. Um, I thought Tevin Farmer won. Uh, he outlanded his opponent. He landed more punches in 11 of the 12 rounds. He threw more punches in 10 of the 12 rounds or 9 of the 12 rounds. He was a defensive wizard in there. Not a Pernell Whitaker, uh, cross of Pernell Whitaker, Muhammad Ali, uh, Rocky Balboa that HBO was painting him out to be. But Farmer, he definitely won that fight. He got robbed. And uh, that was a little uh, outcry on Twitter that night. And then in the main event on HBO, we saw... Orlando Salido, our favorite fighter, or the brawler, the Mexican brawler, in there with uh, Roman, and that was sneaky, sneaky fight of the year candidate. I mean, these two guys were in a phone booth from the start of the fight, and I noticed out of Orlando Salido, he looked a little old. <laughs> I mean, he looks old because he's been in so many wars. When he was entering the ring, I just remember saying to my brother uh, that, you know, Salido looks old. Man, I think he's going to get starched tonight, and he ended up getting knocked down twice. He didn't, you know, he always gets knocked down early in fights, Salido, and he usually bounces back. He didn't have that elasticity. He didn't have it tonight. You can see that all those wars in his career finally uh, paid a toll. But, you know, it was an interesting stat here from uh, CompuBox is that I think 90% of their combined punches were power punches. I think and the CompuBox average is 72%. So these guys, they were coming into the fight. We knew it was going to be a war. It delivered on many fronts. And, of course, Orlando Salida always delivers big fights. But he also announced his retirement after the fight. So that's two retirements this weekend, Salido and Pascal. We might see a third retirement, and it's not going to be uh, on his own accord. We might see the end of Guillermo Rigondeaux. Uh, that, of course, the whole weekend was culminating for the super fight on ESPN. Uh, Lomachenko, Rigondeaux, I mean, people were talking about it, tweeting about it. Everyone was watching it. Uh, Tim Tebow in attendance, uh, Michael J. Fox, you name it, they were there. They wanted to see the first ever matchup between two multiple gold-winning Olympic fighters. It had everything on paper that you wanted. Sold out MSG. It was going to come on ESPN for free right before the Heisman Trophy Award ceremony. It had everything. Everything on paper was there. The fight, of course, sometimes in boxing, they don't actually live up. Takes two to tango, they say. Takes You need a dance partner in there. Lomachenko looked outstanding. Right from the opening bell, using his jab, clearly the bigger man. He outclassed him. He outthrew him. He out-everythinged him. You want to use the, any adjective you want to use. He was better fighter than Rigondeaux on this night. 
So what did Rick and Dow, uh, what did he do in there? He used all his old tricks. He was holding from the start. He was doing that Mike Tyson move where you hold and you pull down on the arm that could look for a broken arm. Yeah, Rick and Dow was doing all that. He knew he was losing. He was getting outlanded like crazy. He didn't land more than three punches in any round, according to CompuBox. He just didn't have it, and he knew it right from the start. Uh, so what did he do? In uh, the sixth, going into the seventh round, he didn't come off his stool, claimed that he had a hand injury. I do have a slight issue with people, you know, doubting whether his hand was broken. For all we know, he could have a broken hand, you know. So, But how many times in boxing have we seen a fighter break their hand or have you seen a fighter sustain an injury, uh, separate his shoulder, uh, look at Miguel Cotto, fought the last five rounds of his last fight with a torn bicep. How many times have we seen a fighter get hurt in the ring? Happens all the time. But they fight through it. They don't want to go out like that. They want to go out, you know, with their reputation intact. That's why I have a hard time giving Rigginton any benefit of the doubt here. He's a guy that is brilliant in the ring when he wants to be. He's brilliant at 122 pounds, not so much at 130. He agreed to fight at 130, so I don't want to hear that excuse either. But you take everything into account here. Rigandau, the smaller guy. Rigandau, outclassed. Gets a point taken away for for uh, holding. So he started to cheat once he knew he was losing. Doing all these slick moves. So then he doesn't come out of the corner. He doesn't come off his stool with a hand injury. All those factors. You can come up with your own synopsis you can come up with your own uh answer here um did he quit or not because i knew there was a lot of discussions on twitter following the fight saying that it's it's not our uh right to say that he quit you know there's a right way to quit there's a wrong way who do we to say you know looking out for his future but you know this dude was blacklisted from television on fighting on tv because of his style he finally gets the biggest fight of his career biggest payday of his career he went on twitter and talked trash we he was in almost every single twitter hitter segment we did the guy talked so much so much crap on twitter he practically begged for this fight he got the fight and that's the type of performance you're going to put out there why not why not go out and, and fight with your other hand or at least try to go through it but you never know you did he quit did he not quit it's going to be debated uh for a long time but one thing we do know is that vasil lomachenko is a monster. He, I'm starting now to believe Bob Arum because Bob Arum is one of the best hype men in the game, and rightfully so. He's the best promoter ever in boxing. He was saying before, during his last fight that this guy is, is is the closest thing to Muhammad Ali, talent-wise, that I've seen in my day. Uh, he's better than Pacquiao. He's a mix of Pernell Whitaker and, and Muhammad Ali, and he hits like a you know Pacquiao in his heyday. All the superlatives, I'm really starting to see it here with Lomachenko, and I'm looking forward to seeing... Uh, Vasil Lomachenko move up to 135, a showdown uh, with Linares, a showdown with Mikey Garcia, maybe move up to 140, 147. I think the sky is the limit for Lomachenko. I was at his fighter workout during the week, and uh, it was interesting. It was almost like a, a prelude into this fight because Rigandau came out first and worked out, put on a show, put went over the top with all his workouts, you know, spitting the water up in the air, throwing his fist, doing push-ups, spinning around, put on like an in-your-face type workout. Lomachenko comes in quietly, does his workout with his dad there overlooking, leaves the gym, and that just showed on uh, on Saturday night. So uh, great weekend of fights, great show planned. We have the great Michael Buffer 
joining us momentarily. We have the Twitter hitters. We have the good hook of the week. We have Brian Campbell, the one and only Brian Campbell. CBS Sports writes about wrestling. Power tweets about Monday Night Raw. Talks about MMA. Gets Bob Arum to admit that he smokes pot 24-7. So we'll see who we can get out of Brian Campbell. He's coming up next. We're going to have a great show for you here on Inside Boxing Live. Our first guest here on Inside Boxing Live is a jack of all trades. He writes for MMA. He writes about wrestling, but most of all, he writes about the sweet science that is boxing. He's CBS Sports' Brian Campbell, and he joins us right now. Brian, I know that you picked uh, Guillermo Rigondeau to win this fight, so I give you this forum to defend yourself. Wow, wow. You know, they call it on Twitter the hashtag cult of Rigo, and I was one of the leaders of, of that movement, you know, and it's it's it'd been such an interesting career for Rigondeau where you really didn't know how great he was. He was equally underrated and overrated for different reasons. And unfortunately, Saturday, Vasily Lomachenko, what Rigondeau showed you is, you know, he's a front runner all along with that tremendous exemplary wizardry of technical skill when pushed against the wall, did he have what it takes to to find a plan B? In this case, he didn't. And I think, you know, for anyone to come back and say, well, what about that Amagasa fight in Japan a couple years ago? He got knocked down twice and he rallied. I think in that fight, Dan, he, he knew he had avenues to do that. Once he realized he did not in this fight, he asked out and he was able to confirm all the reasons why people didn't like him coming in, why he had been the black sheet of boxing for so many years. And it was unfortunate. And, you know, even a guy like me who who went the distance with him, picking the majority decision upset, it was just not to be. Before we get into the the technical aspects of that fight, and I want to, want to talk about the vibe in Madison Square Garden. We know that it was, it was sold out months in advance. Uh, talk a little bit about what it was like inside the theater at MSG. Talk a little bit about the, the weigh-in. What was your overall experience for this fight week? You know, it, it it went over and above what I thought it could be, you know, and it surprised you that a fight that's so hardcore, right? I mean, this is like the 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 boxing super fan Super Bowl in a lot of ways because of that. I mean, it's like there's no trash talking or or heavyweight knockout potential in this. This was going to be at its best, right? Some some chess, yet it sold out so quickly. Even Bob Arum admitted it probably could have and should have been in the big room at the Garden had it not been for the Rangers game it was competing against. And I was very happy at the at the sales and at the energy in the crowd. This really felt like a big deal. And, of course, it was helped by ESPN's coverage right after the Heisman Trophy presentation. We had Tim Tebow and Desmond Howard and the like in the arena. James Dolan was there. You had that vibe. And I was very surprised to see that Rigo had a great deal of fans to match those very hungry and aggressive Lomachenko ones. This felt like it was going to be something major. And like I said in my recap, it felt like it was going to be historic. And instead, what we just saw was a historic fighter evolve out of that in Lomachenko because Rickendow just wasn't able to live up to the task. Now, there was a lot of big debate here about whether or not Rickendow had a serious injury, whether he quit or people have a problem with saying a fighter quit. You know, I know the ESPN broadcast was very quick to say, you know, trying to say if he was actually hurt or not. What is your take on all that? Do you think that he was looking for a way out of this fight, given the, all the uh, the dominance by uh, Lomachenko? I absolutely do. And I think if you go watch, back and watch that sixth and final round, there was periods where Rigondeau did try to rally, and he was using that left hand. And, you know, nothing against him. I, I would never sit here and sort of question him for calling out. The rare times I do that, you know, and maybe I can remember a fight uh, – you know, if a guy gets in there and right in the first round, you know right away he doesn't want to be there and he asks out of it. That's a different scenario than this. I'm not going to sit here and rip Rigo's decision. 
but clearly I think he quit on his stool. He wanted no more. The reason why this is a little bit interesting and not that I'll give him a, you know, a portion of a pass is that he was boxing's black sheep coming in. Everything was tilted against him in this fight. And in a lot of ways, his entire career, so many people not willing to give him the respect that I think part of him quitting the way that he did the moment that he realized there are just no avenues for me to rally in this fight. This guy is too big, too talented across from me, too quick also, which I think was a big part of it. I think this was Rigo's way of sort of giving that middle finger back to that audience just by saying, I'm not going to give you the pleasure of watching me get stopped because in that final minute of round six, he started to get tagged clean with left hands where it was the first time I had that feeling, not just that he's going to lose. I felt that after round one, that he was clearly going to lose the fight, but that he was going to get knocked out doing so. He knew that. I think he was just saying to everyone out there, you want to question me during the years. All these fighters want to avoid me. Top rank wants to drop me. And I'm not saying all of that wasn't Rigo's fault, right? Like he's his own worst enemy. But at the same time, I think this was his way of saying, I'm not going to give you that delight and that benefit. I moved up two weight classes to finally get a fight like this that I deserved. And I'm going to end it the way that I feel like it. Friday night, you had Wilder and Ortiz back there facing off. I want to talk a little bit about the heavyweight division. Do you think a Wilder-Ortiz fight can happen given uh, everything that uh, Ortiz went through? Uh, sadly, I think it can, Dan. And I only say sadly for like, the respect and the honor of a sport that is supposed to penalize people when they are caught taking performance enhancing drugs and not, I don't know, allow them back in the ring like a month and a half later with really no slap on the wrist outside of, uh, you know, what did they get a minor fine? I, I don't even remember at this point because it's so ridiculous that he's back there. Did I get fired up pro wrestling style when him and Deontay Wilder are face to face and you know, the PBC FS1 announcers seemed overwhelmed. Like a fight might break out and Ortiz is grabbing the mic and dropping F words. I loved it. Of course I loved it. Right. But is that right? I, it's, it's, it's worth debating, right? Do I think they can be back in? Yes. Wilder really wants to prove that he's legit. He does not want to enter that Joshua fight when it does finally happen with all of those question marks that he hasn't ever beaten anybody. Ortiz is the guy to do it because still, if Ortiz can be the best version of him, man, is he hella dangerous, right? I don't know if he can ever be that. I don't know if that version was only PED fueled. Obviously, there's more questions than answers there, but I do have to stop and pause and say, yeah, this feels good. It tastes good, but it certainly isn't right to see Ortiz back in there so quick. Vicious, vicious knockout from Ortiz. And the thing that I took from that is that Wilder, obviously he's rumored to face a bunch of other opponents before he goes up there with Joshua and Dominic Brazil or Joseph Parker. He's almost like pushed them out of the side and was like, I want Ortiz. And it goes to your point saying that he wants a viable opponent before he gets in there with Anthony Joshua. Yeah, and, you know, certainly that fight would be fun to watch, whether it's the watered-down version of Ortiz that we saw against Malik Scott where he went the distance and wasn't impressive, or whether he can dial back and be the same guy who destroyed Brian Jennings in such explosive fashion, right? That Either way, that's going to be a fun fight. It's going to do great things for the credibility of Wilder. I really can't say anything bad about Wilder because he wants to answer all the questions we have for him. He's basically like, I don't even care about your press transgressions you know, basically test clean and I'll meet you in that ring. So give him credit for that. Boxing will be boxing though. We'll see Ortiz back in there again sooner than later. Another fights are some other fights that we saw this weekend on Saturday. We had the HBO card with uh, your dude, Orlando Salido, uh, retired after the fight he lost in a very uh, exciting Orlando Salido fight. What was your take on uh, Salido versus Roman? 
this is like a sneaky fight of the year selection in my mind. I mean, it went 10 rounds. It was back and forth. Every time Salido got knocked down and you thought it was the end for that fight, you thought it maybe was the end for his career at, at what, 37? Did he rally back each time and put Roman on the ropes? This was, it kind of had like some Gotti Ward parallels in the fact that both were in the spot, right? With Roman kind of needing a win to keep his career going and Salido trying to get to that Lomachenko rematch for big money. Well, he didn't end up getting there, and man, was it dramatic on the way there. And if Salido's going to step away right now, I think that this is a career that we're not going to really appreciate and understand like a fine wine until years to come. Because he was, for all intents and purposes, the Mexican Arturo Gatti. He gave us anything we could have hoped and asked for over the second half of his career. And although he did make some money in doing so, it's a shame he never had that giant, giant showcase opportunity for us to love all over him. Because, man, does he bring it every time out. It was sad to see him go just like that. But even his exit was spectacular. You, you call him the Mexican Autoragati. I'm rocking my Autoragati Roots of Fight shirt right now. But you're right. You, you know, Salido is a, a type of fighter that you're going to look back on and say he, he didn't get all the credit he deserved, even though he did beat Vasil Lomachenko in just his second fight. And there's a backdoor Hall of Fame argument in there, Dan, and it's only because Gotti got in. When Gotti got in, it sort of changed things, right? That was the fame part of the Hall of Fame that really helped him get in. I don't know if I'm ready to cast that vote for Orlando Salido, but I think he's in that conversation now where you're like, he does have a few big wins along the way. I know he had like 14 losses. I know just him getting to the title level was was a surprise considering how he started his career. But if we're talking about entertainment and fame, I would you could do worse. That's all I'm saying. You could do worse than casting a vote his way. The HBO card, did you see Steven Smith's ear? Yeah, and I, I hope I never see it again. Are you kidding me? Was that was that done by a punch or a machete attack? That was about as gruesome as you see in boxing. I mean, it's like MMA always gives us the shattered legs, and I never want to watch the sport again. This is one of those rare times in boxing where, like, oh man. Posted it on my Instagram story, which, and I didn't give a disclaimer. I had maybe about thirty responses saying, "Why did you do that? Please don't ever do that again." I mean, I did see that he tweeted that everything's fine, but that was just gruesome. I don't know, you know, physically how that's possible. I've seen a lot of shots to the side of the head into the air, but to see it slice just like that. And I know we've seen similar things before in boxing and MMA, but that seemed like it happened quick. And man, it was gruesome. I'm glad they stopped that fight right away. That he's never seen anything like it. Andre Ward said he's never seen anything like it. It, it was gruesome, gruesome, gruesome. But another HBO fight that we have to look forward to this weekend is very big in the middleweight division. A lot of ramifications. There's a WBO title on the line. That's BJ Saunders going up against David Lemieux. What's your take on this big fight in the middleweight division, Brian? It's really interesting, and there's a lot of players. You know, for all we talk about HBO not having the best run for making big fights the last couple of years, well, they're still low to that middleweight, right? We still got Canelo, Triple G, Danny Jacobs kind of sitting around watching to see what happens with this fight. I, I like Billy Joe Saunders and the fact that he can do that annoying style. He can almost take some of the qualities of a Sergio Martinez and mix it with somebody who's not afraid to stall and hold the ball. And when he is forced to fight, he can sting you a little bit, right? We saw him drop Andy Lee twice in that title win. But he's a tough guy to get in the ring. He's also a tough guy to figure out and solve. And as much as Lemieux is fun and a straight-ahead guy, you know, all business, coming in there to knock you out, maybe coming in there to steal your girlfriend after the fight, 
I think Saunders can can tame him and discipline him and win that. And then he becomes a fun player because of this, Dan. He's marketable, and he doesn't care about what your agenda is. He wants to get his money. He's going to talk trash you on the way there. But I think he's going to be a fun B-side if he gets by Lemieux, whether it's a fight against Danny Jacobs, whether it's a fight against you know Golovkin if they can't make that Canelo rematch. This fight it means a lot in terms of what it can spawn off into. Do you think that the reason that Triple G – the Canelo rematch hasn't happened or the, the fact that it hasn't been finalized is because Oscar and Golden Boy wants to see how this fight shakes out? I think, you know, if we're talking conspiracy theories, that's a very hot and juicy one because Oscar promotes David Lemieux. And we've always sort of kept in the back of our minds when we thought we were getting close to Triple G Canelo 1. We're like, is Oscar going to swerve us at the last minute? Is he going to sub in uh, Lemieux to fight Canelo? Like, we know that Oscar would love an in-house fight with two of his pardon the pun, but it makes sense, sexiest offerings in Canelo Lemieux. All I'm saying is it's not signed yet, this rematch that everybody wants, and it kind of makes no sense that it isn't. You might be onto something right there because if Lemieux plows through and knocks him out and sort of makes a statement, then maybe Oscar goes, hey, Triple G, we'll fight you again. How about we'll fight you in the fall when you're a little bit closer to like 37? How about we wait until that? It's, it's very interesting. You talk about uh, David Lemieux. You're a hair guy. I'm a hair guy. We had David Lemieux on uh, last show, and he said that he's not going to be coming in with the long, flowing, uh, shaved head haircut. What are your thoughts on that? Wow, that's a big change, you know, because that guy, is he's he's got those the matinee idol looks and the locks to match with it. But if you remember in the Golovkin fight, it seemed to get in his way at times. It seemed to be, you know, like he didn't use a hard enough product on that night to really get it to form and stay in the place he was. I was watching from ringside and I felt not only was he helpless to that Golovkin jab, he was helpless to his own sort of style and craftsmanship and the way he set that up. I mean, I don't know if he needs to go to the shave look. I just think he needs better stuff. Maybe go more of a modified season one, 902-0 Brandon Walsh look. Maybe go out the sideburns a little bit. If I could work his corner just as a stylist, I think I can help improve his career. You might have a, a, a side career there. But before we let you go, I want to, you know, as we're ending 2017, it's been such a great year for boxing. Brian Campbell's Fighter of the Year. Wow, wow, right? Just, just coming out with that, swinging big here. Uh, it's so interesting as we get closer here to, to the end and try to pick this because a few guys have a case here, but I don't think anyone's case is a slam dunk, right? Lomachenko's probably the best fighter of the year, but I don't think his resume matches to earn the Fighter of the Year award. And even this Rigondeau win, which is great because Rigo's a two-time Olympic gold medalist, it was sort of a soft way in how that fight ended. So who do I give it to? I think I got to go Anthony Joshua because I think his victory over Klitschko in April was dramatic and it was the biggest victory anyone in contention for this has that they can hang their hat on. And he, you know, had that second defense against Takam and really he launched and announced himself as a worldwide star, not just a UK star making huge millions of, of pounds, baby, right? Pounds they got over there. He's now doing it worldwide. He's probably ready to invade America soon. I give it to AJ, although full respect to Terrence Crawford unifying the belts, to Lomachenko, to Triple G, who had he won beaten Canelo like a lot of us thought he should have, probably would have been a slam dunk for this win. But I got to hold him back, too, and give it to AJ. What is your fight of the year? Uh, you know, the knee jerk from everybody is Joshua Klitschko. It was epic. It was classic. It was the heavyweight championship. Guys got up off the deck, man. It was like feel spot activated. And I was right there feeling that, too. But you're talking about up there against fights that went, you know, from zero to 60 start to finish with full on action. And my favorite fight of the year, my award for the BC 
fight of the year in 2017 was a fight I was ringside for in March. The first Chocolatito Gonzalez versus Srisaket Sorong Vizai brawl. Because here's what we had. Obscene action and intensity and blood back and forth. Two different contrasting styles. The busier Srisaket against the powerful Chocolatito. But we also had the number one pound for pound fighter in the world who was unbeaten. Who we thought may never lose. Yield in somewhat you know, disputed fashion on the scorecards, but a fight that I felt could have gone either way. I scored it a draw. And to not just see him lose, but in subsequently in the rematch when he got knocked out, we saw the end of the run. We saw a dramatic handing off of that title of being pound for pound king, being that guy, and then giving it up to an upstart that we'd never heard of. I mean, look at Sorung Vasai's box rec page. Look at like the last five guys he fought before Chocolatito. I think they may combine for five wins. I mean, it's really, this was a guy we did not see pulling this off, and that was a hell of a fight. A hell of a fight for the BC pick of the year, Dan. One thing that is great to see is your face, because we got you here on, on Skype, We and I know that you had the first time you called in, we tried to make this work. I want to say you're the first guest on Inside Boxing Live to appear via Skype. Wow, that means pound for pound, I'm number one on the hair rankings at the moment then. A lot going on in the world of boxing today, a lot of uh, news and notes, so we try to wrap it all up into one segment on Inside Boxing Live that we call In Case You Missed It. And now first, In Case You Missed It subject today is uh, Manny Pacquiao. He was uh, named a colonel in the Filipino Army over the weekend. Uh, I think he's doing that maybe to intimidate Conor McGregor. I joke and I kid there because I don't think that fight's going to happen. But Manny Pacquiao, of course, is a senator in the Philippines, but now he can add to his ledger he is now a colonel in the Filipino army, and that brings us to our next story here. There's a report that Manny Pacquiao is in talks with Conor McGregor for an April fight. Now, Dana White, of course, getting into the world of boxing, uh, snap back at Pacquiao and Team Pacquiao, said if that's the case, if Manny Pacquiao is engaging in talks with Conor McGregor, I will sue him because Conor McGregor is under contract with the UFC. Uh, it's an interesting story here. I don't personally. I think this is Pacquiao just kind of trying to you know bang the drum a little bit, try to get some uh, headlines around him. He's kind of he brushed off the fight against the rematch with Jeff Horn, so that's not happening. Maybe he's just going for the big fights now, the big money. He knows he might have maybe one or two fights left in his career, so why not call out Conor McGregor? He saw what with uh, Mayweather did and made a bundle of money, so. He could probably make upwards of $100 million or more should McGregor this, you know, play out. I Honestly, I don't think it's going to happen, but, you know, crazier things have happened. I didn't think that Mayweather-McGregor was going to happen, and uh, that fight happened, and it delivered, uh, and it made a ton of money. So Pacquiao-McGregor is in the news today, and we did have Freddie Roach on our last show here on Inside Boxing Live, and Freddie said it's very unlike Manny Pacquiao to call someone out. He doesn't think that it was Pacquiao that posted that picture on Thanksgiving Day on Instagram. He also thinks that it's an easy fight. He's maybe destroy him, he said, maybe in, in less than three rounds. And I kind of agree there with Freddie. I don't think it's going to be, if this fight does happen, I don't think it's going to be like Mayweather-McGregor, where Mayweather kind of sat back for three rounds and carried him, as uh, Mayweather admitted to. I think that if this fight does happen, Pacquiao will come forward. He'll try to cut off the ring. He'll bring the fight to McGregor. And it might end up in a, uh, a KO a lot earlier than we saw with Mayweather. Uh, moving on here with, uh, in case you missed it, Superfly 2 announced for February 24th. 
We're going to see so uh, Rung Visai back in the ring going up against Estrada. Uh, it was such a hit. Their first Superfly for HBO. This was a no-brainer for Peter Nelson uh, to put this fight together. The 115-pound division is something that didn't get a lot of publicity in boxing traditionally. And uh, Peter Nelson has to be applauded for putting that fight card on earlier this year. It was a huge success. Big-time fights. Always action-packed, the, the smaller guys. So uh, we're going to look out for Superfly 2, February 24th, which I think is going to deliver once again. Because as I said, these guys, these little guys, they're never in bad fights. It's always exciting. They throw a lot of punches. It's great for us at CompuBox. Keeps us on our ones and twos. So uh, Superfly 2 scheduled for 2018 in February. There were amazing fights already scheduled for 2018. And uh, we talked with Brian Campbell, and he spoke about how he didn't want... The biggest thing he wants in 2018 is no drop-off in production, no drop-off in quality of fights. We've seen this phenomenon in boxing where it's one great year followed by a poor year. So we've already seen that there's some pretty good fights scheduled for January and February in boxing. We're going to see Spence come back. We're going to see Groves versus Eubank. We're going to see yeah, the World Boxing Super Series pick back up. A lot of fights. Kel Brooks going to come back. We'll talk about that shortly. So there are some good fights scheduled for the first quarter of 2018, which is a very promising sign uh, for the world of boxing, which brings us to our next uh, bit of information here. That's Kel Brook. Just came across the wire here that he's going to be back in the ring March 3rd. He's taking on Rapchenko in a tune-up fight. We don't know if it's going to be on HBO or not. We do know that Kel Brook is with Eddie Hearn's matchroom boxing, and we do know that Eddie Hearn signed a deal with HBO to be one of their providers. So we're going to see Kell Brook back in the ring in March. And this is interesting for a number of reasons, is that he's officially moved up to 154, a division that has a lot of big names at the current moment. We saw what Showtime did with their triple header with the Charlo brothers and uh, Arislandi Lara. Uh, I don't know if you want to see him or not. Jared Hurd. So, uh, but the fight that there are, it seems like makes the most sense for Kell Brook down the line, should he be victorious over Rapchenko, is Kell Brook versus Saddam Ali. It's a huge fight. It's two very big markets. You got Saddam Ali coming off of a big-time upset over Miguel Cotto at Madison Square Garden back December 2nd. You throw in Saddam Ali and his fan base, you throw in Kell Brook and his rabid fan base in England, and you got yourselves a very interesting fight in the 154-pound division that can be seen on HBO. So uh, that's a reason to keep an eye on Kell Brook for the big fights he has coming down the pipeline for him. Another, in case you missed it, tidbit here, it's Dana White. Uh, we know that Dana White said he wants to get into boxing. He made somewhat of an announcement uh, a few months back at the Wildcard West Gym with director Peter Berg, where he was very vague, didn't give a lot of information, did say that he was going to dip his toe into boxing. Uh, we had him on one of our programs here at CompuBox TV, and he did say, you know what, I am going to get into boxing. You saw him wearing the Zufa boxing shirt for the Mayweather-McGregor buildup, but he did clarify a little more about what he wants to do in the world of boxing. He said, you know, I can go two ways in 2018. I can go two avenues. Uh, one of them, we know for sure, is not going to be working with De La Hoya or Bob Arum. He made that very clear. He actually had a nickname for De La Hoya. He called him uh, Kuka Hoya or something. He does not like Oscar De La Hoya. So Oscar De La Hoya, Bob Arum will not be uh, working with Dana White, according to Dana White. So that leaves 
a pretty clear avenue that he should go down. And this is what I think that Dana White's going to do. This is just my opinion and people that I've talked with in the industry is that Dana White is most likely going to team up with Al Heyman. It's a match made in heaven there. You have Al Heyman and his 200 fighters. You know, as, as you know with Al Heyman, he's a manager, not a promoter. He uses a, a various promoters all over the country to promote his shows. So if he teams up with, with Dana White, who is one of the best promoters there is, it's a very, very good plan that they have. So that's something to keep an eye on in 2018. Dana White getting himself back into boxing. Because when I say back into boxing, as you take a look at Dana White's Wikipedia page, it's very impressive. And you can see that he got his start in boxing. It's a crazy story about how Dana White got into boxing. And he had a gym in, in Boston. Uh, Whitey Bulger and some of his uh, the famed uh, gangster and some of his underlings came to his gym. Pretty much tried to extort him. Wanted money every week to keep the gym open. Dana White said, no, I'm not going to do that. They threatened him. Dana White then left Boston, moved to Las Vegas, where he teamed up with Lorenzo Fertitta. Rest is history. Bought UFC. So Dana White is a boxing guy at heart, and he says that 2018 is the year uh, that's it's the right timing, he said, for him to get into boxing. Keep an eye on that. Finally, our last tidbit here. In case you missed, Terrence Crawford, who was in attendance on Saturday night at the Lomachenko fight, he could potentially be facing Jeff Horn should Jeff Horn get past his opponent uh, in December. That's going to be an ESPN fight as well. So let's say that Jeff Horn wins. We can easily see a fight made between two top-ranked fighters and Terrence Crawford, Jeff Horn. And the interesting thing here is Todd DeBuff uh, with top rank said that it could land on ABC, uh, regular television. Of course, we know that Top Rank has their deal with ESPN. Uh, of course, ESPN uh, is in affiliation with ABC under the Disney umbrella. So maybe we see Crawford Horn in the spring of 2018 on ABC. I, I mean, I would, wouldn't be opposed to that. i get more eyeballs on it, which then sets up Crawford pay-per-view. Because I know that Bob Arum and I know that Todd DeBuff and Top Rank, they want to start doing some pay-per-views. Which is interesting for a number of reasons. You do a Crawford pay-per-view, it's a lot easier to, to match him up or lure a Errol Spence, who's with PBC, lure a Keith Thurman, should they fight the winner of that. It's a lot easier, there's more dollars in it if it's through pay-per-view and it, it can come together for a joint production. So that's something to keep an eye on. A lot going on in the world of boxing. We always try to keep you up to date here on Inside Boxing Live with In Case You Missed It. We were able to secure an interview with the great Michael Buffer. As we know, he's a very busy man. He's flying all across the world, but it was a very good interview. Uh, he shared so many stories about his illustrious career. Uh, one of those was how he came up with his patented catchphrase. I can't say it on the air because he'll sue me for copyright purposes, but you got to check out this can't-miss interview with the great Michael Buffer. Our next guest here on uh, CompuBox TV really doesn't need an introduction. He's the man that does the introductions in the ring. He's the one and only Michael Buffer. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining us on CompuBox TV. That's good to talk to you. Now, uh, it's been a great year in the sport of boxing. 2017 has delivered on so many fronts. I want to ask you, what has been your favorite fight of the year so far? I think, without a doubt, the best one so far was, uh, you know, we, we always like to look toward the heavyweight division for, for a big fighter, a big star, but uh, Klitschko and Joshua uh, in April was just an unbelievable heavyweight fight. It had everything you want. The, you know, the, 
the electricity and atmosphere of 90,000 fans in Wembley in the UK and, uh, you know, Vladimir somehow reached back and, and pulled out a great effort. And even in losing, he, he went out uh, on his shield, but he went out like, uh, like the star that he was. Yeah, you know, I totally agree with you. That's my personal fight of the year. You know, the heavyweight division, you, you, you factor in an old uh, guy that's been on top in so long for Klitschko, fighting the young line, and Joshua, you know, knockdowns and back-to-back rounds and 90,000 fans. I mean, you absolutely nailed it there. Absolutely fight of the year for me. Uh, a lot of th- things that fans don't realize is when you're done with your duties in the ring, once you've introduced the fighters, is that you have had a ringside seat for the last 30 years of some of the greatest fights of all time. You know, I almost look to you as like almost the ambassador to boxing. You know, you work with all the networks, you work with all different promoters. Talk a little bit about your love uh, for boxing. Yeah, you know, even uh, it it probably started uh, at my age back in the 50s, you know, watching a little black and white TV and uh, Rocky Marciano. Sugar Ray Robinson, Gene Fulmer, uh, so many great fighters uh, on TV on the Friday night and Saturday night fights. Uh, I just became really hooked on boxing. And uh, my first real, you know, fighter that I just, like, loved was Floyd Patterson. And I lived and died with Floyd Patterson. And, uh, you know, through the years, it, it, it probably, you know, that, that affection for a fighter, you know, went into Muhammad Ali starting out with him in the Olympics as Cassius Marcellus Clay. And so for me to, to end up in a, a dream job, it's just a dream come true. So, yeah, you're right. I, I get to do my job and then sit down and become a fan and, and watch these fights. And through the years, there's been quite a few really good ones over 35 years now. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but Ray Leonard uh, said, when Michael Buffer introduces you, you know you've arrived. Now, do you think about the role that you play in some of these fighters' careers? Yeah, I I find it really flattering when a, when a, an Olympian or a, you know a young fighter is starting out that you really have the feeling that he's going to be a star, and he he comes up and he tells me he says I I can't wait to uh, to get to that moment in my career when when you introduce me and say let's get ready to rumble. That's uh, I, I kind of have to pitch myself and say, "Wow, this this kid, you know, is uh, is thinking that far ahead, and that I'll be a part of this moment." It's, it's very flattering. Yeah, it must be so flattering. And you talk about your trademark, obviously. Let's get ready to rumble. And you know, it's been well documented, and uh, obviously, it's it's so famous across the world. Talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, talk a little, share with us everything that went into "Let's Get Ready to Rumble." All the other catchphrases that you might have used. What was the the process? of coming to that, you know, such a famous catchphrase like that. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. But, you know, when I started doing this in uh, 1982, the uh, all the ring announcers were introducing literally everybody that had a, a credential from the state and national and federal commissions. And um, sometimes it would be up to 22 uh, names being announced before you meet the fighters, the stars of the show. And and this was just in an age where we started having fighters come to the ring with music and uh, atmosphere, maybe even fireworks going off, and there's all this energy in the room. The ring announcer would just kill the crowd because you have to all of a sudden, now there's no music, here's the announcer, here's 
you know, Michael Buffer or Chuck Hull or Ed Darien and Jimmy Lennon, and we're we're introducing people that nobody cares about. <laughs> the uh, the chairman of the commission, four commissioners, executive director, uh, four doctors, three judges, the fighters, WBC president, <laughs> supervisor, WBA president. You see where I'm going? Mm-hmm. You've just wiped out all the energy in the room. So I wanted something that would be comparable to uh, gentlemen start your engines. You know, when you hear that phrase, you know it's iconic and you know it means now the race is about to begin. So I, I want something that would just let the fans know that when I, when I say uh, that uh, the early phrases that you mentioned were, you know, man your battle stations or ladies and gentlemen, fasten your seatbelts. I wanted to come up with something that would let the fans know now you're going to meet the stars of the show, the people you were all excited about when they walked into the ring. And, uh, you know, I, I fine-tuned it with Let's Get Ready to Rumble. I remember the famous Muhammad Ali used to uh, say he was, I'm so pretty, I'm ready to rumble, rumble, young man, rumble. And there was that, that phraseology out there. So uh, I fine-tuned it to uh, Let's Get Ready to Rumble. That's what you hear today. Wow. I mean, just this magic right there. Did you like? How, when did you know that it, it took off? I mean, obviously, there's no social media back then, so you don't have fans, you know, reaching back to you to tell you I really liked Ready to Rumble. Like, when did you know that that was the call? Yeah, you know, I, I really, um, if you probably can go to YouTube and look up some of these old fights, and you'll see. I I, I used to say, uh, let's get ready to rumble twelve rounds of boxing for the, and I would just go right into the. You know the, the the fight. You know, like what's coming up, and and not have that pause to let the crowd react. And, and what happened was, this was probably in the early '90s. I became friends with a, a gentleman out here in Los Angeles. He since passed away, Jody Berry, and he was a a, a singer, an entertainer, and he was one of these old Hollywood type guys. And he had been very very successful in the uh, 50s and 60s in what was uh, still a big thing in live entertainment called uh, you know dinner clubs and supper clubs and he would open for uh, like Ella Fitzgerald and, and you know, some of the great uh, great names and, and, and in a while he was also a headliner himself but he had he had this grasp of performing and one time we were out having a couple drinks after one of those legendary uh, uh, ten goose boxing shows I'm sure your dad Oh, yeah. In the Reseda, California. And uh, Jody said to me after he had a few drinks, and he was uh, he was saying, Oh, Michael, when you say it, let's get ready to rumble, shut the expletive <laughs> up. And I'm like, What do you mean, Jody? He said, Well, people want to react. So I, that's when I started to say, Let's get ready to rumble. And I would pause. And sure enough, it would get a response. And, uh, you know, I'm always open to learning things, and even, even uh, you know, I've been with my wife now 14 years, and, and more than 10 years ago, she said to me, when you say, uh, before you say, let's get ready to rumble, you say, ladies, drop my scope, ladies and gentlemen, like that, just kind of like, it was like a dramatic thing, and then mm-hmm. let's get ready to, and she said, say ladies and gentlemen with more energy, because everybody really kind of wants the whole thing to be, and I was like, so you never know where you're going to get good advice. That's amazing. And so I picked up on that too. So I'm always willing to learn, but uh, it, it's it's an evolving process, and 
Wow. It's, I mean, it's been amazing where, and you look back, just to look back at how you started and where it's where it's taking you in your life. And uh, when you're out there and uh, you're in Monaco and you're on a, on your balcony and you're sipping some, some tea, do you ever look out and say, wow? I mean, just pinch yourself and say, what a life that uh, has all started from this catchphrase and your talent. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, it's all, there's just a lot of pinch me moments where, you know, it's... Um, it's just hard to believe these things happen. So, um, yeah, <laughs> Christine and I just were in Monaco for a week or so. It's crazy how things work out. I had to work in London, and then Matchroom had a show the, the following week in uh, in Monaco. So I ended up actually spending uh, a free week, uh, my birthday week, actually, in, uh, in Monaco. And just that itself, where you just, you're right, you just sit there, balcony looking over the uh, the beach and say well this is uh, this is actually I'm, I'm getting paid to do this so and it's been pretty good over the last 30 plus years amazing uh, a little rapid fire questions with your favorite venue for boxing you know there's been um, a lot of good ones but I guess there's still the magic of the mecca of boxing, Madison Square Garden in New York City, uh, for a sold-out fight. My my first really big show was June of 1983, and it was another one of those comeback fights for Roberto Duran, where everybody said, "Oh well, he's finished," and he was coming back to fight uh, Davy Moore for the junior middleweight title. And Davy Moore had been one of these. Uh, young fighters that uh, won a world title in only his uh, ninth or tenth fight or something, and he was just, man, he was just chiseled steel, and he was, you know, he was a, a tough guy, and they figured, well, you know, uh, top rank put the show together, and it was like, well, does this, does Roberto have one more left in the tank, you know? He had already had the, the no Moss fight, and he was, you know, everybody was looking down on him, then he, uh, he started coming back, then he had another loss, I forget who it was, they figured he was through, and it, out of nowhere, the fight became a total sellout, the crowd was insane, and uh, that's that's the magic of Madison Square Garden, it's just, it's electric, you save the garden, or you write down MSG, and everybody knows what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, you're talking to a New Yorker, so I know all about the, the garden, and uh, especially Miguel Cotto, I've been to... Uh... I'm only 30 years old, but I'm lucky enough to have been to uh, eight of Cotto's fights at the Garden. He's the guy's a he's a brand in New York. But uh, one more rapid fight. You were sitting there at ringside when you were uh, came up to my elbow, so <laughs> I know you're familiar with uh, Madison. I know. I mean, I was just I was just talking about it with my dad and my brother, and they're here in the studio. And on a personal note, we would go to the fights, to the old ESPN fights in the 90s. And I would be no more than maybe eight or nine, and Nick would be uh, 12 or 13, and you would walk by, and I would you know, hit Nick and say, oh, my man, it's Michael Buffer. And you would come over and uh, talk to us, and uh, Nick would uh, do his little drawings, and uh, here we are talking today. It's amazing, right? Yeah, I remember. Nick, the artist, and uh, here you are in the, in the game with, uh, with your dad. And it's just crazy how things evolve through the years, isn't it? It's crazy, and the craziest thing is you were kind enough to do the uh, the wedding intros uh, for my brother's wedding. So everything just comes full circle when it comes to boxing. Uh, yeah, you're making me feel like a real geezer now. 
I mean, come on, man. You look great these days. Are you kidding? But I, w I do want to ask you, what's the craziest thing someone, I know you, you, uh, they pay you to do all sorts of, of uh, appearances, but I know there's also people that reach out to you to do some quirky things. What's the craziest thing someone has paid you to uh, lend your voice for? Uh, probably, you know, through the years, so there are people out there with deep pockets and they, they want to do some, uh, some fun things for their kids. And I've, uh, had people pay the price for me to fly across the country and uh, <laughs> be there for their kids bar mitzvah. One was a uh, an 11 year old his birthday. It was a, his father was a hedge fund manager who had a mansion in Connecticut on a lake, and uh, they brought me in. I remember I did wrestling, part of WCW wrestling for a seven year period along with the boxing, and so this guy actually. Um, I mean, I threw a number at him that I figured there's no way he's going to go for it, and he did. And then on top of that, he brought in John Cena and uh, Hulk Hogan, and I, I mean, these guys were getting hundreds of thousands of dollars back in those days for personal appearances. And <laughs> so he uh, he uh, he spent the money. That was a pretty crazy event, and some guy's uh, supersized uh, basement in his, in his mansion in, uh, in uh, Connecticut. Wow. But you know what? They talk about crazy. And, you know, I'm not sure if you were there or not, but uh, your dad was um, in Madison Square Garden. People always say, what's the craziest thing that's ever happened? And there, there's, there are two of them. And that would be Fan Man, Caesar's Palace, with Evander Holyfield and Riddick Bow 2, where the guy came down and crashed into the ring, and somehow nobody got injured. And then uh, Madison Square Garden with... Uh, uh, Riddick Bowe and Andrew Galata and a total, total full blast riot broke out after uh, Riddick Bowe got hit uh, below the belt, way south of the belt, like about eight times by Andrew Galata, and they had to stop the fight. And uh, that was insanity. And in those days, they only had a few, uh, a few guys on duty at, uh, at the guard. No police, uh, you know, were in attendance working that night. So that was a pretty crazy. Yeah, I was very young for those, but I remember the fan man and being scared because, you know, I'm seven or eight years old, so I couldn't understand what I was watching the pay-per-view at home and with my brothers, and I didn't understand what was going on, so that was crazy. And then the Bogalata, that's when you get really scared because you know that my dad is there, and uh, I just remember his stories of him grabbing the computer and just bolting out of there. I mean, there's so many crazy yeah, things that happen. Yeah, you know, because people rush the ring and we're, like, all over the place. And uh, one of the famous things about that, is you, can, you can still go to YouTube and, and catch this, is the HBO broadcast, George Foreman wraps his arms around Lampley, and like, you know, guys are like climbing up on the tables and trying to get in the ring and everything, and you can hear George saying, you don't want to do that, son. A classic. <laughs> and he's just, he's protecting, you know, like people are trying to like climb over him or step on the desk, and I mean, I can just imagine some, some schmo trying to push George Foreman aside back in, jeez, uh, that must have been like, what, 19? I think it was 96. When was it? I think it was 96. The, uh, the 96? Yeah. Oh, man. I was nine years old. an amazing night. Yeah, I would like to see the, the other side of that camera, the guy's face when uh, George Foreman said, don't go there, buddy. <laughs> Big George, uh, I don't think it, I think, yes, sir, Mr. Foreman. I'm sure yeah. he stepped back. 
Uh, Michael, I can honestly go on and on with these stories all day long, but I know you're a very busy man. I appreciate you taking some time out and uh, talking with me, and I'm looking forward to seeing you ringside as, as usual. All right, take care. The great rapper Drake once said, Twitter fingers turn to trigger fingers. And uh, when you mix in boxers, their Twitter accounts, and a lot of smack talk, you have some of the best tweets there are out there on the internet. We're ready for our next segment. It's the Twitter hitters of the week, my favorite segment. Got to get into it here. We'll start off in the women's division. Clarissa Shields, she fights in January, and she took to Twitter to explain how that she wins fights or explain some of the criticism that she faces. She says, one-dimensional. No, I can box. I can brawl. I can slip punches, roll punches, counter, disguise my punches, box with my hands low, and also in a high guard, follow instructions, make adjustments. Hmm, what else? I can win. My resume says so. And uh, I wanted to bring this tweet up for numerous reasons. I think the women's boxing doesn't exactly get enough credit or enough publicity. Hats off to Showtime, hats off to Steven Espinosa and everyone over there that are uh, making an investment in the world of women's boxing. Uh, and Clarissa Shields is quite the woman to make an investment in. She won Olympic gold at the Olympics. She is a... Uh, I met her at one of the fights at the Barclays Center, I want to say, over uh, a few months ago. Very polite. Uh, we got to talk with her a little bit. Great woman. Hell of a fighter. And we saw uh, over the weekend on ESPN, it wasn't on the ESPN telecast, but it was on the ESPN app, was uh, Michaela Meyer. And I saw her at her fighter workout. Very impressive woman. Uh, she can fight. She was also an Olympic uh, medalist as well. So the women's division, women's boxing, I think is starting to, is on the up. It's starting to, to be recognized more. You see when Top Rank starts to invest and Bob Arum starts to invest, you know that it's serious and there is a market for women's boxing. We saw, obviously, in UFC with Ronda Rousey and Holly Holm and all the great fighters over there, Cyborg. I mean, the women's, women's fighting in general, whether it's the UFC and boxing, needs to be recognized a little more. But moving forward here with Twitter hitters, we got Steven Edwards. He's talking about the young generation of fighters. And uh, it's kind of a subtweet. You know, you have, if you don't know what a subtweet at home is, is when you tweet something out and you're keeping in mind a certain someone, but you're not listing that someone. Nick, are you familiar with the term subtweet? Uh, no, Dan, you just brought that to my attention. Um, <clears throat> who? He, he tweeted it on December 2nd, which was the day of Cotto's fight. So he tweeted out saying, uh, young fighters of this era are the most disrespectful in the history of boxing, which is a pretty bold claim, but it led me to do some investigating, Nick, on Twitter, and I think it was directed at Javante Davis, the young 140-pound, he's not a champ anymore, I think he relinquished his title, he's with the Mayweather team, he tweeted out, it's time for the OGs to hang it up, it's the new era, stop disrespecting us, we're going to spank that, you know what, every time, no disrespect. Why is Javante Davis tweeting about Miguel Cotto on the night saying, what did Miguel Cotto do to disrespect the young fighters? Thinking that he can win? I don't know, man. There's like a new era of boxing. Here in 2017, we're seeing a lot of these guys retire. We saw Miguel Cotto retire, Floyd Mayweather, Klitschko, go down the list, Bradley. There is a new, younger generation. Unfortunately, there are guys like Javante Davis who 
feel like they're being disrespected. Then he came out on Twitter and it said it wasn't about Cotto. Just, I guess it was a coincidence that he tweeted uh, that the night of the Cotto fight, uh, 10 minutes before it went live. So, I don't know. To keep an eye on that. There's so much going on on Twitter and a lot of these fighters, for the most part, these young fighters are very respectful, but uh, there were a few certain bad apples in every big group. Uh, moving forward here, another guy talking about sharing his wisdom, like uh, Crusher Shields did. Uh, it's Andre Ward. He has been a little more active on social media since his retirement. And he says, speaking of social media, uh, that with entourages and media hype can give you a false sense of security, causing you to believe you've made it before you've actually done anything. It's sad, but it's true. And uh, I mean, if anyone can uh, give the wisdom, and I think that's kind of like the role that Andre Ward has taken on here. I know he's a big um, a mentor to Shakur Stevenson. I'm not sure if he's he was big on um, bringing him to James Prince, who is a uh, famed manager in boxing. But he's part of the, the Stevenson team, and he sees Stevenson as another Olympic medalist, just like he was an American. Uh, young African-American. So I think that Andre Ward in his retirement is going to be a guy that young fighters can look up to and kind of see how he did it. Uh, you can go to the, There's two different routes you can almost go in boxing. You can be the hated, like Floyd Mayweather was, and do everything, you know, the money, the flashing the money, and, and just being an antagonist. Or you can go the Andre Ward route, who was just a great fighter, let his skills do the talking. But you take a look at Andre Ward. It wasn't popular wasn't super popular as he should have been uh, in america but it's not going to stop him from giving wisdom every day on twitter uh, he's a good follow on uh twitter nate diaz the nate diaz that lost and beat conor mcgregor said that the ufc offered him a title fight in his weight class i'm cool with a k uh though i've given him a shot uh, they do something good. On to the next sport for now with uh, using the boxing glove emoji. So this is interesting news from Nate Diaz wanting to get into the world of boxing. He's going to follow McGregor into the world of boxing. I do think that Nate Diaz is going to have some trouble here in boxing. Uh, not because I don't think he's capable. He's shown some pretty decent uh, stand-up skills in his career. And he's one of the reasons that I like watching him in the UFC, being a big boxing fan, is because he's good with stand-up and he likes to trade. But here are a few reasons why I don't think Nate Diaz is going to be make a, has a future in the world of boxing is because he's not exactly marketable. No one really knows who Nate Diaz is. He hasn't fought in over a year. You know, people aren't. He's not. He's not a a champion in the UFC. He's not like McGregor, who had the reason McGregor Mayweather worked was because McGregor beat everyone in his division and beat everyone in two divisions. He's the champ, champ. Don't forget that. But the reason that Nate Diaz not a champion, not a household name. I can see him maybe fighting on an undercard. Like, he's not going to command these huge fights. There's not going to be boxers like a Pacquiao or probably a bigger weight or any middleweights out there that are going to be running to fight Nate Diaz. Like, I don't think there's a market for it. So I'm not saying that he can't do it. I'm not saying he shouldn't do it because these guys have every right to go out and make the most money they can while they're in their prime. But I do, don't, I do not think he's going to get the big fights that he might think he might get. Uh, finally, here on Twitter hitters, uh, Daniel Franco, as we've been following the story here, he is, the, of course, the once uh, affiliated with Rock Nation fighter that uh, lost his last fight, suffered a traumatic brain injury, went through a series of, of surgeries for his brain, um, 
injury, just had another surgery over the weekend. He posted videos and uh, pictures. Everything's fine. He actually shared the video, uh, the picture of his giant scar over his head. But the thing with him is that he's not getting any help from his uh, promoter in Rock Nation. He tweets that it's been six months since my last fight slash near-death experience. Still no call from Rock Nation. Um, I know that the boxing media has been putting the pressure on uh, Rock Nation. You take a look. This was last week, our good hook of the week. It could be the good hook of the week every show that we do, for that matter. And uh, don't forget to uh, donate to the GoFundMe page of Daniel Twitch Franco. There it is right there on the screen. We at CompuBox donated. We... Tell you, the viewers out there, you enjoy this great sport of boxing. You like uh, how you're entertained every weekend throughout the calendar year. These are the stories you don't usually hear about. These are the stuff that makes the sport so great is the resiliency of these fighters. And let's support uh, one of our own, and uh, Daniel Franco, and uh, do the right thing. He's a uh, great young man. He's He tweets all the time. He, he actually tweeted after that uh, Tevin Farmer uh, robbery. Uh, Lou DiBello, Tevin Farmer's uh, promoter, tweet, I'm done with boxing. I, I hate this sport sometimes. And then Tevin, uh, then uh, Twitch Franco responded, goes, yeah, I hate it too. You know, I, I mean, I'm kind of happy that I'm out of the sport of boxing. So, uh, you know, a lot of emotions going through Daniel Franco's mind. And uh, let's do the right thing. The kid's on the mend. He's on, he's on the recovery. Why not donate to his uh, GoFundMe page? But that's it for uh, Twitter hitters. Uh, don't forget, you can always send us your tweets at CompuBox or at Dan Canobio. And now it's time for our fight fail of the week. Uh, there are no reports about that young man who took that speed bag to the nose. Um, he might have a broken nose. There might be a GoFundMe page for his recovery. We don't know yet. Um, we'll keep it posted on that guy. Uh, fail of the week. It's going to be an ongoing segment here on Inside Boxing Live. But we do want to talk about how we always end our show here is with the good hook of the week. And uh, this week's good hook of the week goes to Dana White. Of course, president of UFC and now boxing uh, character. So we can in, uh, put him in this week's Good Hook of the Week. I'm sure you've seen this video by now. It's gone viral. I think it's got 15 million views of Keaton Jones, a young boy who was getting bullied in school. He uh, recorded a video. His mom recorded a video of him talking about kids going after him because of his looks, because of uh, lack of athletic ability, Go down the line. Kids are brutal these days. And um, we do have the video of young Keaton Jones. We're going to play it because we want, uh, maybe there are kids watching, to see the other side of uh, the victims of uh, bullying in school. So, uh, Nick, can you cue up the video? Just out of curiosity, why do they bully? What, what's the point of it? Why do you find joy in taking innocent people and finding a way to be mean to them? It's not okay. What do they say to you? They call me, they make fun of my nose. They call me ugly. They say I have no friends. What'd they do to you at lunch? Put milk on me and put a hand down my clothes. They bread at me. Is it just you? Yep. Or is it other kids too that feel that way? Say it's other kids too. How's that make you feel? 
why did they do it to me? And I'm just sure you know why did they do it to other people? Because it's not okay. People that are different don't need to be criticized about it. Because it's not their fault. But if you are made fun of, just don't. So, really powerful stuff from Keaton Jones and just shows you that bullying is a problem here in America. It's a problem across the world. And there are a lot of uh, anti-bullying advocates and programs out there. Uh, but Dana White uh, took to his Twitter yesterday. He's very powerful, has a lot of followers. And he said, uh, you know, meet Keaton Jones, very smart little boy who's being bullied at school. This video is heartbreaking. I want to bring Keaton to Vegas to hang out at the UFC headquarters. Please, if there's any way to reach him or let's find help find his family so I can get in touch with him. That got like 200,000 favorites, you know, 70,000 retweets. You know, and that was at 2.15. By 4 o'clock, uh, Dana White said he found, he got in touch with Keaton. He said, uh, thank you for all, thank you all for helping me find Keaton. 1,000% greatest post and response in my social media history. This kid is special and we all feel it. And it wasn't just Dana White, but he, Dana White kind of got the ball rolling here. Uh, you had Daniel Cormier, you had ton of UFC fighters, you had celebrities checking in, you had celebrities inviting him to premieres, you have celebrities inviting him to all sorts of events. The kid is going to have, he's going to go to about 30, 300 events in the next year. He's not going to have time to go to school. But it just shows you the power of good on the internet. A lot of people trash the internet, rightfully so, for all the negativity out there, but this showed you the power of uh, Twitter got 18 million views on Facebook, uh, and then I there, I do want to address this. The mother um, was quoted saying that people wanted to know why you know she was recording her son you know at one of his most vulnerable moments. But she said, for the record, Keaton asked to do this after he had me pick him up again because he was afraid to go to lunch. My kids are by no stretch perfect. Uh, he's a boy, and as they come, by all counts, he's a good at school. Talk to your kids. You all know how it feels. How they want to belong, but only a select few know how it really feels to belong anywhere. So, uh, this story has been covered greatly. We're gonna see it play out even more. Um, we'll see where it goes. But most importantly, you can say what you want about the family and how they're gonna handle this newfound fame that they have. But uh, most importantly, what this issue is that it's brought, uh, it's shed more light on bullying and how terrible it is. And uh, being in the boxing business, a lot of great fighters started their careers because of bullying. Look at Miguel Cotto. Had an illustrious 17-year career. The reason he got into into uh, boxing because he was he was an overweight kid and he, he was getting made fun of. How many more stories like that do you hear in the world of boxing? So let's stop bullying everyone out there. Let's be a little more mindful, a little more compassionate, especially uh, during the holiday season. So it's always great to end the show with a positive note. So shout out to Dana White. Shout out to Keaton Jones. Keaton, stay strong, my man. There, this is only a small phase in your life. And if anything, you have a, an army uh, behind you. Uh, but it's been a great show. Special thanks to the one and only Michael Buffer for joining us on Inside Boxing Live, sharing some great stories about his career. Shout out to the incomparable, the beautiful, the well-groomed, Brian Campbell uh, for joining us via Skype. Got to see his beautiful face. That's always a great thing. Uh, great job by our super producer, Nick, our executive producer, Bob Canobio. And a special birthday shout-out to my nephew, Quincy Gibbs. Happy eighth birthday, little man. I hope you're terrorizing your mother out there. Uh, I'll talk to you soon, my man. And, of course, our next show 
is going to be a year-end review. Got a lot planned. Some of the biggest names in the sport will be joining us to talk about their fight of the year, plans for 2018. Of course, you can watch us on Pluto TV. You can watch us on YouTube and on iTunes, too. If you can't watch and you have to listen at work, go on iTunes, search CompuBox TV. You'll find the Inside Live podcast. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for watching. Hope you enjoyed the video. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube page. I pity the fool who doesn't.